Welcome to the NutraStrong podcast, Campfire Nutrition. I'm William Rowe, CEO and co-founder of NutraSource. Over the last 20 years in the nutrition business, we've helped companies around the world commercialize their products. Still to this day, some of these nutritional concepts are difficult to understand. I'm on a mission to help you, the consuming public, understand nutrition better. Join me as I sit down with nutrition industry leaders for casual chat that I hope you find educational and fun. Thank you. Have a great episode. So uh, welcome, everybody, to another episode of NutraStrong Campfire Nutrition. We're very thankful and honored today to have uh, Dr. Susan Kleiner, or as some know her, Dr. Sue, who is uh, involved in many areas of sports nutrition, including one of the co-founders of the International Society of Sports Nutrition, and uh, was uh, a the big idea person behind ISSN in itself and uh, runs a consultative practice called um, a high performance nutrition. So uh, Dr. Sue, great to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us and spending some time with us. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here today, Will. Thanks so much for having me. So just a little bit before we get into uh, sports and nutrition and fitness and all those fun topics, uh, that you can speak to. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and uh, what uh, sports nutrition means for you. Well, um, my background is, uh, you know, it, it's a long story, but I did start out, so many people in this field, whether you're a coach or a trainer, a, a sports scientist or uh, exercise expert, nutritionist, um, we came from our own sort of physical activity background with a curiosity in how to do whatever we were doing better. And so um, I was a pre-Title IX girl. Uh, I didn't have the opportunity in public school to have much sports participation. There weren't sports for girls. And in my high school, there was a great big, huge Olympic-sized boys' pool. <laughs> it said boys' pool on the door. Um, mm. Never had a... a competitive pool or basketball court or anything like that for girls. Um, I became a modern dancer and that what became my passion over many years. I did some training in New York while I was a high school age and then was really curious and realized that my path really was going to be going back home and going to college. And so I was really interested in health um, from the very beginning. Uh, fascinated with science and biology, thought that was actually a route to medical school. But instead, when I was uh, interviewed by the dean of admissions from the medical school, it happened to have been Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio, which is home for me. Um, mm. I, uh, I knew this gentleman. He knew me very well. He was the dad of a good friend of mine from, from high school. And he said, Susan, we'd love to have you in medical school. You'll learn nothing about what you're interested in. You're interested in health. We teach people how to treat disease. Go talk to the Department of Nutrition. Now, this was in the late 1970s. The word prevention was not part of the medical vocabulary. And the idea of nutrition was a dietitian, a clinical dietitian, registered dietitian, in the basement of a hospital, um, feeding folks in hospitals or in public health nutrition. There was no private practice. There was no anything um, 
uh, in the way we think of nutrition and prevention and wellness and health today. And so immediately when I recognized that opportunity, I wanted to learn more about fueling exercise. And so that was the beginning of my journey. It wasn't a field yet, but I did um, start out, got my master's degree, left, went to a hospital, became a registered dietitian, went right back and focused my research in what was at that time, nutrition and human performance. And um, with my specialty interest being, how do you actually feed muscle to build it, which was unique as a perspective at that time. What we were looking at predominantly in the 80s was aerobic exercise and cardiovascular exercise, uh, the big um, jogging boom and running boom. Uh, people were also cycling and, and the, the extreme exercise was the race across America of, of mm. the beginning of cycling and actually the beginning of power bar. So um, it was the Olivia Newton-John era. Exactly. And so uh, I wanted to find out about muscle building. And so my research uh, and and my my own exercise veered off into strength training and bodybuilding. And, uh, and I did uh, what stands today is one of the largest studies ever on um, competitive male bodybuilders, nationally and internationally ranked, uh, looking at diet and the influence of anabolic steroids on the risk of cardiovascular disease and on body composition. And we had 18 steroid users and 17 non-users and um, you know, documented everything because you could and you had to, of course. Anyway, that led to a series of, of um, many research studies. Uh, it also led to a, a high interest by the media because in, I was uniquely positioned to talk about muscle building and diet. Uh, and so started being interviewed by the media. I was started to write for for muscle magazines and various other athletic magazines. I continued my academic research career and then um, left academia when I started a family and opened my own practice. And so I've been working all these years. I, I am a communicator. I love to write and to speak, write books, write articles, speak at conferences, speak at, you know, for audiences like this, uh, all forms of media, as well as consulting with individuals, with industry, uh, and, and really my de definition is less sports nutrition, more the name of my business, high performance nutrition, to work with anyone who, um, has a goal of achieving peak performance. And I always say, whether it's in the locker room, the boardroom or the bedroom, <laughs> anywhere where you want to achieve peak performance. I, all I, the key rooms. Right, all the key rooms life. in our lives. <laughs> yeah. Oh, very interesting. So that study was then quite pioneering for its time because bodybuilding, although there was uh, sort of the Gold's Gym phenomenon and the Arnold Schwarzenegger phenomenon, Mr. Universe and so forth, really leading the charge. Uh, that must have been quite a pioneering paper at the time. It was just documenting um, what athletes were doing and what their health parameters were. And the observations that came out of it um, were, the, you know, really at the very early days of beginning to understand or at least to examine, not understand, but 
to spur the examination of, for instance, strength training and bone health. As I moved from uh, studying males to studying female bodybuilders and seeing the extended period of time where they lacked all the bone building minerals in their, in their diets because of restriction of dairy due to uh, misconceptions about dairy and sodium content. Um, there was, uh, at the same time, a surprisingly healthy bone structure. And so, well, is there something about strength training that is healthy for bones? Um, it also, we saw uh, the, in, in my early study, the original ones and then following on the men, very high fat intakes. And yet cholesterol profiles in the non-steroid users that were remarkably healthy. And they were not doing any aerobic or cardiovascular training, actually minimal because there was again also this idea that any kind of aerobic exercise would melt away muscle. Now we have, we have adjusted that certainly over the years. And yet at that time, it was just as the Framingham study had been published talking about dietary fat and risk of cardiovascular disease, raising cholesterol levels. And here we saw very high fat intakes and very high saturated fat intakes, very high cholesterol intakes, and relatively healthy um, cholesterol and cholesterol profiles. And so was there something about strength training and muscle building that was protective? Um, vast number. Well, just before you move on, but you mentioned the Framingham paper. For the average listener out there, give us some more context because that's a pivotal paper in our industry. So it'd be great to give a little more color around what that paper means and why it's so often referenced and why it was so significant. So um, prior to the publication of the Framingham study, and it's called that because it, the, the population studied was from Framingham, Massachusetts, right outside Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is where Harvard is. And there was a consortium of researchers who were looking at, I, I believe they looked at 20 years of data Maybe it was 10 years to start with, and then it's gone generational at this point. The first time that we really had documented data that what you eat impacts your cholesterol levels, your, your blood cholesterol levels, and that your blood cholesterol levels can be predictors of risk of heart disease, of coronary artery disease. And so... The question prior to that, or the, the common thing that would come from doctors is it doesn't matter what you eat. You're gonna, you know, you can eat, you can smoke, you can do all this stuff and, and nothing's gonna matter. And I remember going to American Heart Association conferences where all the cardiologists were smoking and coming out of their conferences at the little hot dog carts. And that's what they were eating, hot dogs and fries. and. These were the, all the cardiologists. And it was the Framingham study that- There's nothing like the chain, chain smoking cardiologist. Right, exactly. So when it came to diet, um, it was the Framingham study that put a line in the sand and said, mm. absolutely, what you eat shows up in your bloodstream. What you eat 
can influence your risk of heart disease and uh, cardiovascular disease. And so um, that it was a game changer. And we started, you know, we had some misconceptions that that came out of that um, or or unknown data. You know, it started out as high fat diet, period, high fat, high cholesterol diet. And then it was refined to, well, it's actually saturated fats that are really, you know, more risky in your diet and polyunsaturated and monounsaturated have beneficial effects. Uh, and then a little later on, well, actually dietary cholesterol isn't, isn't the boogeyman either. Dietary mm. cholesterol is dismantled during digestion. And, and it's really, you know, the main culprit um, is saturated fat in the diet. But, you know, early See, That's on, a great point. If we could just unpack that a little bit further, yeah. is that misconception, not just for dietary cholesterol, but also dietary sodium and other dietary intakes because where I found consumers get super confused even to this day is the dietary intake in English language we have limitations of what we call things sometimes and one of the confusing things when I talked to people at omega-3 fish oils was how can I take triglyceride fish oil to lower my blood triglyceride levels I'm, I'm taking more in how does that reduce it right so so we have these terms in, in, in health communication that I think are very confusing. And talk a little bit about what you just discussed, unpack that further, about dietary cholesterol versus circulating blood cholesterol levels and why they're not the same thing. Because that's a point of huge confusion. Because right. so many food companies say cholesterol-free, and they're implying that it, because of cholesterol-free, your blood levels of cholesterol are somehow favorably impacted, but the two are not very strongly correlated, if at all, in a lot of cases. So unpack that further, because I love that discussion. <laughs> so um, you notice that I was careful to to be clear when I said dietary cholesterol, yes. and so that that is one you know that's one particular part of the problem, as you said, a dietary cholesterol is what we eat blood cholesterol or serum cholesterol is what's floating around in our bloodstream. And dietary cholesterol is available in our diet only from animal products. There is no cholesterol in plant foods, just to start. So when you see your, your bottle of corn oil or canola oil and it says cholesterol free, it's, it's kind of like, duh. I mean, yeah. <laughs> any plant food, no. unless you add an animal product to it, is by yeah. nature cholesterol-free. Yeah. So it's a marketing gimmick to do that. When we do consume cholesterol in our diet from an animal product, typically it will come in from animal fat. And so it's it's part of the fat fraction is cholesterol. Cholesterol is a way that actually fat moves around in the bloodstream because fat and water don't mix. And so you couldn't have droplets of fat floating around in the bloodstream, or if you do, you're in trouble. So we package it. The body packages it in a, in a, in a way that it can actually move, be moved around 
between one place and another place in your body, cholesterol is, is one way that we do that. And so when you consume cholesterol from an animal product, again, this is dietary cholesterol, it comes in from your diet, and you consume mm. it, you eat it, we digest it. We take that very large compound and we break it apart because we can't pass cholesterol, a basically fairly large compound across the intestinal membrane into the bloodstream. It has to be broken apart into its component parts. And so it doesn't go from cholesterol in your diet to cholesterol in your bloodstream. You make cholesterol in your bloodstream in a, in a, from other fats and other products that are reassembled in your liver and, and we combine them again to allow the fat or other particles to float around in your bloodstream and get to different places and they are packaged in different ways for different purposes for delivery to different structures in your body. So what we have learned is that the biggest building blocks for your body to make blood cholesterol or serum cholesterol, they are the same thing, just, you know, some people, uh, serum cholesterol is a little more specific, is, the, is that we need saturated fats. And so when people have too many saturated fats or they have a genetic propensity to overproduce cholesterol, saturated fats are the number one problem. Dietary cholesterol gets broken apart and, and, and piecemealed absorbed into your bloodstream and it is not immediately rebuilt into cholesterol in your blood. It goes about its business with many other functions that all those parts of the dietary cholesterol is there to perform unless, again, you have a genetic dis disability where your body can't stop making cholesterol. And then all of the particles that can form into cholesterol will be built into cholesterol. And so then you do have to limit the amount of dietary cholesterol along with the saturated fats but that's a small proportion of the population compared to the people who are over consuming saturated fats and having elevated cholesterol levels because of not just diet, but also lifestyle, other lifestyle factors. I just love the way you explained that and rolled that out because that is a big area of confusion for consumers, no question. So thanks for getting us through that journey. I just have to say a little bit going back to you know, there's there's the confusion starts with the public announcements of research studies in the early days of our understanding of a, a sort of a pioneering um, investigation. And so it was groundbreaking to learn that our diet, period end, <laughs> our diet influenced our risk of heart disease. That was mm -hmm. groundbreaking evidence. We had a lot to learn. You know, we've had, we've had what, 50 years now, nearly 40 plus years since the release of the original study. And we are still getting more detailed knowledge. And to me, while that leads to confusion on the part of the public that doesn't understand the progression of scientific investigation and becomes sort of frustrated with the changing 
story <laughs> over years. Um, to me, that's the excitement of science. That's the challenge to take your ego out of it and to learn mm. that what I told you 30 years ago doesn't stand to it. That we have much more knowledge that I wasn't giving you fraudulent information back then. I was only giving you the knowledge that we had. Today, right. we've got, you know, we are light years from then. It would be as if saying no one could ever, or the earth is round and sticking, or the earth is flat and sticking with it once we learned that the earth was round, right? Mm -hmm. We know that science moved on and we discovered that the earth is round, despite what some people may still think. And so that's the nature of science. And that's the challenge to all of us to learn, to keep learning and, and understand keep learning, yeah. the story evolves. Yeah. And to keep the open mind, to keep learning, I think is mission critical. And that you're right. That's the exciting part about as science develops and moves ahead and moves forward and progresses across multiple disciplines. That's where the excitement part is, because I think the moment we say, okay, that's it. We figured it out and it's done. Uh, that's not too much fun anymore. No, uh, because then everyone just thinks the same thing and, and stops learning at that point. And to me, science it's vigor when it continues to have that open door to learning. But that's great the way that you've unpacked that. Fantastic. And then just going back to earlier, uh, for people out there who may not know or, or from outside the U.S., such as myself from Canada, you mentioned pre-Title IX. What is, what is pre and post-Title IX? What is Title IX? So um, Title IX was a law, a federal law that was passed that said that any public institution that received funding from the federal government could had to have equity between the sporting opportunities uh, between genders so that money had to be evenly distributed between girls sports and boys sports and so it completely it. changed the landscape where when, as I said, I was in it, it, the law was passed, I believe, in 1976, I think. Um, and so uh, th before that, it was perfectly legal to have no female varsity sports, no opportunity for girls to do sports in a public school. After that, that was illegal. And so sometimes more money w was um, given to the school and they could you know, just grow the female sports side. In other instances, there had to be uh, a downsizing of the opportunities for boys to raise the bar for the opportunities for girls. And, and you know, as you can imagine, that didn't go over so well. But um, it was, you know, it was at all levels of public institutions. And so that meant all schools that received public funding. And it was, it was absolutely a game changer. And when I look at the young women today on our U.S. women's national soccer team or the women coming out uh, for, for in, in basketball, we're watching the March Madness right now in the final, final eight, the final four, to see the 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 level of play is is so fantastic and well girls never had the opportunity to develop that 
in, in my era. Unless you were, so depending on where you were in the country, which is so interesting, I have now many friends who grew up on the West Coast. I do now live in Washington State in Seattle, but I grew up in the Midwest in Cleveland, Ohio. And the girls that I know who grew up on the West Coast, they did have sports available to them year round. Many schools did offer outdoor swimming, tennis, even track and field. They had the space and the time to offer that to girls. Whereas in the Midwest, it was, most of the year you had to be inside and you had to have facilities and there just weren't. Right, yes, it's a vast country, both Canada yeah. and the US. And depending yeah. on what part of it you're in, there's some of these uh, seasons are pretty short for some of these activities right. without indoor facilities to accommodate, no question. Well, that's very interesting because that's not that long ago. And then when it comes to uh, the International Society of Sports Nutrition and your involvement as kind of leading the charge there and as a co-founder, tell us a bit about that. What inspired you to get that going and how that came together and, and how that's moved ahead over the years? Well, the inspiration was, while I um, am proudly a registered dietitian, the only sports nutrition sort of academic organization was the practice group called Sports and Cardiovascular Nutritionists that was a subset of, at the time, the American Dietetic Association, today the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. And it was very exclusive. You had to be a member of the American Dietetic Association to be a member of the sports nutrition practice group. And so we, we couldn't have, I mean, anybody could attend a conference, but typically speakers and, and membership for sure, leadership was all registered dietitians. And yet, because I think I had gone into the area of strength training and muscle building as a focus to my research, I perhaps had a greater overlap with my exercise physiology colleagues. And I saw very early on how much they understood the basics of nutrition and could speak quite uh, in a very well-informed way about the science of nutrition. Now, could they talk about food and creating a diet? Certainly not like a dietitian could, but they could talk about the um, exercise physiology uh, and, and overlap with sports nutrition as a science. And so it was frustrating to me to know that they were excluded from this conversation in a, in a journal article and in a, in a really big way. And so I also was frustrated, and all of us were, you know, sort of this group at the time, that industry was producing supplements with no science behind it. I have to, you know, give credit where credit was due. Gatorade was just about the only uh, sports product. I call them a supplement. They still call themselves a food. But <laughs> I have not seen Gatorade come out of a cow yet. So I think it's a supplement. <laughs> but... That'll happen sooner or later. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, as I said, they did, they had a tremendous influence on the whole sports nutrition world. 
and development of the science and the understanding of certainly carbohydrate metabolism and sports performance. And so um, short of Gatorade, there was almost no research behind supplement manufacturing. And so that was frustrating because they were lousy products with no efficacy spouting off all kinds of marketing mumbo jumbo that were, was not helpful for my clients. And so I felt at the same time, the scientists, the academics, the researchers, we were having trouble finding funding because the government didn't care about sports performance. Now, if you were doing research on the military, that was different. Mm. But outside of that, it was very difficult to get funding. So the way to grow the funding opportunity to enhance the, the, the understanding of what is really good research by the manufacturing companies to help the athletes and the personal trainers learn nutrition where personal trainers were really where the rubber meets the road in their daily contact with athletes and young athletes as well, student athletes, personal trainers and coaches, why not get everybody to the same table? And so that was the concept, the diversity to bring everyone to one meeting place so we could share ideas, understand the needs of the other and try and meet those needs. And so that was the origin of ISSN. It was out of frustration um, from the exclusivity of the only organization that was talking about sports nutrition. And that was a combination. It wasn't only sports nutrition, it was eating disorders and cardiovascular disease all in one group. We began and co-founded uh, an organization focused exclusively on sports nutrition where everyone could come to the same conference and have a big sharing of needs and ideas. Um, it does require having a bachelor's degree uh, to become a member and certification followed shortly after that so that we could raise the bar of the, the knowledge and understanding of practicing personal trainers and it's just been a really great ride. I, I take very little credit beyond coming up with the idea at a dinner. <laughs> I have to say that Dr. Jose Antonio, Dr. Doug Kalman, Dr. Rick Kreider, they were the, the driving forces behind the actual building of the organization. Anthony Almada was also a co-founder at the time and really helped with the development uh, and and uh, but Dr. Kreider was a, a huge force in the development of what we now have is, has a, a highly respected journal and the, all the educational side. And like I said, Dr. Kalman and Dr. Antonio in a very big way built uh, an organization that I'm quite proud of and, and continues to evolve. Super. And then when it comes to all the work that's being done now in sports nutrition from from when you first started out and really pushed uh, the needle uh, to where things are now, uh, what are some of the trends that you've seen emerge over time and what are some of the key trends today from a consumer perspective that you think are worth noting for those of us who do work out regularly or 
uh, for super high performance people. Is it the same approach? Is everyone customized? Or are there some key basic uh, guidelines that people can follow, even if they're just starting out on a workout regimen? Well, so I think, I mean, the, the, the trends have had historically always been from the, the, the intense athletes and the focus on sports nutrition and enhancing performance, sort of research and evidence-based, from that data and the aspirational nature of an elite athlete to the general consumer. So the, that was always the direction that it had gone. And historically, research was on men, right? And so we would see research and then product development go from trying it out at the, at the sort of bullseye of, of the consumer of the elite athlete, and then working its way out into the more general public uh, with a goal of greater health, wellness, fitness, um, maybe... Uh, recreational athletes, everyday athlete, that sort of thing. Over the last about 10 to 15 years, as more women have have become involved in in elite athletics, and it is, you know, as a result of Title IX, really, we we have a, a great influx of numbers as well as elite goals. There was no data on the needs of the female athlete. And so while some of the data we'd use from men and try and massage it, but in a surprising turn of events for me was that the information and marketing diet information from the weight loss world, which had historically always been sort of female centric, it bled into the athlete space. So it went the okay. other direction. And it was really for lack of data, it, it, there was a vacuum, right? And so what happened was diet world information masqueraded as sports nutrition for women. And, and the people, the manufacturers did it. They, they knew that as they watched the fitness space, they watched the increased goal setting of the population and they altered their terminology but never changed their products. And so what became sports nutrition for women in the last decade is everything that has to do with weight loss and fat loss and fat burning and sex appeal and all kinds of things that have nothing to do with getting bigger, faster, stronger <laughs> and winning races and all of those kinds of things. And so the consumer was poorly prepared for that onslaught and had no foundational information to evaluate what was being sold to them. And it was a successful strategy. Today, there is a, a, a large movement to change that, to increase data on the needs of, a, of an active and athletic woman or girl, and to begin to develop products that are evidence-based to meet the true needs of those consumers. And so that's a big shift in just sort of, for me, the, the general outlook of what I've seen over decades. As far as personalization, of course, we as dietitians 
one-on-one, that's what we do. We always personalize a program. How can an individual do that? How can we disperse that information? Um, It is really, the first is to overcome one of the, the really, I guess, most damaging messages that permeated sports nutrition, which was that you don't need carbohydrate in your diet and carbohydrate is bad for you. And it's, mm. you know, and, and that, that message comes out of the weight loss world, treating obese individuals who have, you know, um, you know, diabetes and heart disease and hypertension, all the chronic diseases associated metabolic with metabolic syndrome. Right? Yeah. So metabolic syndrome, I was trying to avoid that term. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) And so, you know, that's where, that's where certainly understanding, you know, and unpacking what is a highly processed food and high, high, you know, um, highly refined foods and all of that versus someone who needs muscle fuel and carbohydrate is muscle fuel. And so reversing that trend and, and, and then increasing the education and understanding that you can personalize your nutrition as a very physically active individual on a workout by workout or day by day basis and to fuel the need and, and never underfuel the goal. So those two pieces are the drivers of the educational process in my practice. I try to give those two things to my clients so that they don't have to see me for the rest of their lives, that they ultimately understand that you can fuel the need, but you should never underfuel the goal. And that is mm. that is the absolute key to both performance success and maintaining your health and your active lifestyle for a long time. And certainly for my elite athletes, keeping them in the game as long as they can, because if you can extend their playing life, you make a big, much bigger dent in their pocketbook than what it's costing them to see me. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also their passion right. and they want to live out their passion for as long as they can too. Right. Uh, that, 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 that's really insightful, powerful stuff. And then when it comes to um, uh, kind of some of the hotter trends today, whether they're purely marketing or they're based in science, what are some of the things that, that you're seeing as, as we wrap up here for our episode and time? What do you see as uh, some of the things that either should be followed up on or looked out for? What are some of the emerging areas that get you excited or things you should stay away from in your mind? So, um of course, as I mentioned, female nutrition. And so, so the, it's, it's a big sort of white space. There are not a lot of companies doing a good job, not a lot of companies with evidence behind their products or products developed with, with research. And, and it is, it's, it's not only that, yes, the physiology of a female athlete is different than a male, understanding the monthly cycle, all of those sorts of things. And and in the research, we may find that the female need is no different than the male, but we need the data to know that. That's that's, not there yet. Right. 
Um, and there is in some instances, but on a massive scale, there's a huge area where we can do research. Then there is um, also the, the sort of understanding the female athlete herself, her lifestyle, her needs, how do they differ or do they differ? Um, on a moment-to-moment -moment basis throughout her day with, with uh, a male counterpart or um, a young girl. Uh, what are her needs during the day versus the boys as they go to go through their school day and then to practice and then onto clubs or whatever else they're doing if they're in a collegiate setting. So many different issues around convenience and packaging and uh, you know, um, targeting the audience, not based on what we think, but actually asking them and talking to them, not making assumptions, um, which is classic uh, on the part of companies assuming that they know what the female consumer wants. The other side that's super interesting and that is really taking off because of e-gaming is the cognitive side. And that is, is and has been uh, a focus that I've had for decades. I wrote a book called The Good Mood Diet that I published in 2007, but that work started in my practice in the late 1990s, um, looking at what I call the neurobiology of food and how food affects mood and mental energy and mental focus, your ability to cope yeah. with stress, to rest and relax and sleep, all of that. And I worked with numerous teams. I was asked by the, the great coach Pat Riley to come down and speak to the Miami Heat, specifically at that, you know, back in the, in the, the early 2000s, um, because we know how, how much cognitive focus and brain health impacts performance, both physical performance as well as your mental performance. And so, Today, with e-gaming, it's really, you know, it, 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 it's just taking off like crazy. And, and there is a huge overlap between sports nutrition and e-gaming. It'll be interesting to see what happens with e-gaming. Sometimes I have a little mixed feeling about it because, and I'm hoping this is going to change, there's a movement in the UK to try and take the young um, league participants and actually teach them how to take care of themselves. Because making a supplement that says, this is gonna make you better at your sport, but you can sit all day, drink caffeine-laced beverages, not sleep, <laughs> and not exercise, not eat well, you know, that to me is not the message that I wanna send. Just use this product and you'll be better. Right. Uh, but I think we're going to learn a lot about many different interesting products that maybe are caffeine-like, but without the side effects of caffeine. But certainly even products like the omega-3 fats, the, the critical importance of, of DHA and EPA, DHA in particular, in the brain and the function in the central nervous system you know, to, to various proteins and, and, and micronutrients and phytochemicals. I mean, there's just an array of products that I think are under study and will be developed because of the money involved in e-gaming, where you can actually test performance very specifically versus in sports nutrition, where it's kind of a, a piece of the whole and harder to test.
That's really interesting. And, and we're seeing the same trends uh, into the work we're seeing on the clinical and uh, regulatory side and types of product certifications uh, where this all comes together around cognitive function and mental health and uh, both both the uh, the tough part about mental health, but also the plus side and favorable impacts of these products on how it can enhance mood in, in a safe and efficacious way. So, I mean, that's been great insight from you for sure. Well, Dr. Kleiner, thank you so much for your time today. Got to have you back because got to unpack a lot more of what you said. Great information, great insight. And I want to thank you uh, so much for your time and uh, being available to us. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Will. This was fun. Thank you for joining the NutriStrong Campfire Nutrition Podcast. We hope you found this episode both educational and fun. Hope to see you again soon. If you want to check us out further, you can go to Nutrisource.ca or go to certifications.nutrisource.ca. Thank you kindly, and I hope you have a great day. Bye for now.